Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number two. I am your host, Stephen Oki, one of the editors at dailytheology.org and an assistant professor of theology at St. Leo University. Today's episode features my conversation with Maria Paji Johnson, who is a professor of theology at the University of Scranton. The University of Scranton is a Jesuit university in Scranton, Pennsylvania. In our conversation, we talk about her long religious journey, her status as a self-professed sloppy generalist, and the role of hospitality in her life and work. Thank you so much for listening, and please let us know what you think in the comments or on iTunes. Today we're here with Maria Paggi Johnson of the University of Scranton, which is a Jesuit university in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, she has a background in historical theology, although she describes herself as a, a generalist. Sloppy generalist. A sloppy generalist. Her words, not not mine. And today for the Daily Theology Podcast, we're talking to her about uh, her life and career as a theologian, as a teacher. So first off, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. The first question I like to ask people and talk about is, how is it that you came to be a theologian? How did you come to teach theology? What was the sort of process by which this this became your career and, and livelihood? There's quite a long kind of narrative version to this, if you're up for that. I am that totally up for it. Okay. All right. So let's see. No religious anything as a kid. Hmm. I suppose I can go way back. I was my, my father was raised in Italy, very Catholic family. My mother was raised in Mississippi and Virginia, the kind of family that they moved. When her father was promoted from shop floor to management, okay. they moved from... Uh, Methodist to Episcopalian so it was that okay. kind of religion my father's family was very devout they both left the church met married moved to Scotland where I was born my mother had been briefly married and my very Italian grandmother very Catholic Italian grandmother was <laughs> horrified that she wrote her this letter pleading with her not to damn her son's soul by marrying him to a divorcee but once the deed was done she was lovely to a huh. wonderful woman so they had me baptized as a kind of thing for her okay. she lived show in Rome. of good faith yeah uh, and then completely dropped the question when i was 13 ish i fell among well initially it was the scripture union at my um my high school and then that led me to a baptist church so i was rebaptized at uh, like <laughs> 14 or so. And I said, look, I think I've, I've been baptized, actually. They go, oh, no, no, they're Catholics. They're not Christians. It doesn't count. You know, oh. So I'm okay. <laughs> what do you say? So I went, you know, under a little wed, lead pellet sewn into the hem of the big white dress and all that. <laughs> um, so I was there for through most of college in that kind of world. Never very happy. I mean, I... I I was theologically totally clueless. I think we were conservative evangelicals with strong Calvinist leanings. Sure. I think, but I, you know, none of us really knew anything. We were. I spent a, a summer in rural southern Belgium with Operation Mobilization, hmm. which is an evangelical missionary organization, which is kind of it's sort of on the verge of culty. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> but we were knocking on doors trying to trying to convert Catholics to Christianity. It was saving awesome. souls. Yeah, saving souls. Then. My, you got to pick, I was doing English as an undergrad, and you got to pick um, a specialist thing. And I spoke Italian, so I was going to do Italian Renaissance to kind of cash in on knowing Italian. But my tutor, at the one of my tutors who was, um, he was a, a graduate student, 
And he said, well, you know, your interests really seem to be the religious and social rather than actually literary. Why don't you cash in on that and mm -hmm. do the Victorian thinkers thing? Cause the, and looking back, I've got my old essays from them, and I am obsessively trying to work out religious issues. It's hilarious mm -hmm. looking back at these things and just sort of gyrating through this stuff in my head. And I was, I was not a happy fundamentalist because the way we had to read the Bible was... It just didn't, didn't work. work. I could tell it didn't work, but it had to work because I didn't know there was anything else. And that's and, where all your wrestling, I mean, that's where a lot of your wrestling is really situated, right? And like, how you would interpret texts. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 the people I was with had this whole thing called, I don't know if you, it was, um, what was it called? Assurance of Salvation, mm -hmm. which I, you know, they said, well, what, I said, what's it like? And they said, oh, you know, honey, if you've got to ask, you ain't never going to know. <laughs> so, so I didn't have it. And then, so it was all pretty kind of, tense and miserable but it was all I knew but I was always trying to work this out in all my essays so I went I was actually in church I was in St Aldate's in Oxford and this graduation service I had this okay I'm going to do this I'm going to go tell the Italian Renaissance lady I'm not doing it I'm going to go and ask this chap if he'd do Victorian thinkers with me and it'll be great so that summer I had to read I actually had Renaissance stuff for another class, and then I had the Victorian thinkers reading because you did all your reading before term because mm -hmm. what time was you got there, and I thought I was had a miserable breakup from this uh, my, my my second year in college boyfriend mm. and we we just sort of played Bible tennis and it was he was a convert as well and we were ah. just really immature super we're great pals now he teaches um, Old Testament <laughs> and you should have him on this thing he teaches Old Testament in Durham and he's he's tremendous but and I was miserable I was so miserable and I had to read. Am I going on far too long about no, this? No, this or? is awesome. So, all right. I had to read Love Poetry, and then there was um, Victorian Thinker stuff. And I'd start the Love Poetry, and within, like, four lines, I'd just be blubbering. It was just a wreck. So I'm going <laughs> to put that aside. So I'm going to get it together a bit and come back to this later. So I launched into Newman, the Apologia, with my guard up, because, you know, this guy was a Catholic and therefore he was the enemy and mm -hmm. I had to read it, but I had to not, uh, but I knew it was, I knew he wrote well and that was gonna, you know, if, if you write well enough, you can convince me that, you know, Elvis is living down the road working mm -hmm. in Walmart. I'm a sucker sure, for a good sentence. Yeah. So I, I went in with my defenses up and within like 15 pages, they were just gone. I hmm. like, okay, I did, ah, that's all over. What the hell now? <laughs> so when I went back to Oxford, I went to this place that was in the Anglo-Catholic tradition. So Newman, of course, you know the story, he was he was Calvinist and then he was um, part of the Oxford movement, which is this big Catholic mm -hmm. revival in the Anglican church in the 19th century, and he ended up poping, uh, seceding, as the Anglican said, and oh, yeah? as the Catholic said. Um, so <laughs> I, I, went to the, <laughs> I went to the Anglo-Catholics and said, okay, what, what's this What's this about? And you've been here and, ah, well, I do. And they, there was a, a cluster of little, a little cluster of priests who sort of took me under their wing and we, we'd all get go for daily mass in this beautiful chapel and it was gorgeous high liturgy. I mean sort of s sober high liturgy and then there'd be tea and toast afterwards and oh father would you be so kind just to pass the marmalade <laughs> why yes certainly father here you are oh thank you father great I was just intoxicated and it was all you know tweed and sherry very and, charming and great theology a lot of earnest young men working through issues of sexual orientation mm -hmm. all kind of deeply suppressed and in retrospect and they, oh, that was what was going on with them, sure, yeah. their hearts but uh, one wouldn't talk about it at the time and so I, I went I remember one glorious moment I went to see Father Stewart who was actually American uh, very very posh and asked him about 
assurance of salvation. I said, do you have assurance of salvation? He said, I have no idea what's that. I've never heard of it. So I explained <laughs> it to him and he said, good heavens, no. What a ridiculous <laughs> idea, of course. I mean, God's will will be done and that's all I need to know. <laughs> really? It's okay? So uh, it was great. Um, a great weight, weight was lifted from you? Yeah. So then I was, during this, my parents had moved to Charlottesville. My dad was teaching at UVA and I went to visit them and I didn't know what I was going to do with life after college. I'd grown up in an academic bubble and, you know, once briefly considered, you know, getting a job, but I, I wouldn't really know how to do one of those, so I stayed here. <laughs> my dad always, when asked, how did you become an a- academic, he said, well, I didn't really want to work. So, <laughs> um, so I stumbled across this program called Religion and Literature, mm. which had been funded by a chap called Nathan Scott, mm-hmm. who sadly retired before I got there, so I never got to work with him. He was this very impressive, very intimidating, mm-hmm. huge figure. And thought, well, this is it, because I can, I thought of going on for, um, I I thought at the time, wrongly, that if I stayed in English, I would have to do theory. Mm. Uh, Well, I actually wouldn't have had to, so it would have been fine. But then I thought, well, this way I can read literature and talk about God. Mm -hmm. So that would be great. So I applied, told them what I wanted to do, which was to do with John Keeble, who was Newman's good friend in the Oxford movement, who stayed Anglican, who was a... He prepared for confirmation and was a lifelong friend of Charlotte Young. Okay. Who was more popular as a novelist than Dickens in her day. I mean, she's hmm. largely unread now. So the interaction between his theology and the Christian year and her stuff. And, and no one there had ever heard of it, but they thought it looked interesting. And okay. like, oh, she sounds funny. She went to Oxford, let's have her. So I got there. Grasco was a bit, I wasn't wild about Grasco. I mean, the, the, I had two advisors who were both fantastic, and a lot mm-hmm. of the teaching was, was great. But well, you know what it's like. I mean, you're getting to be an adult, but you're still treated like you're just... just yeah, you're, uh, you're like a really old college student. Yeah. Yeah. So That's kind of how I felt. Yeah, it's, it's old by the end. And I had to kind of reinvent myself, because I'd only ever done English. You specialized very early. So mm-hmm. I was... I, I, fortunately, I have the ability to be the one in the class that doesn't know shit and isn't ashamed of it. So I'd be sticking my hand out saying, excuse me, who's can't? Yeah. And everyone else was scared to ask these things. And I didn't care because I, <laughs> you know, this, this is having this effect on your, your readers. Hopefully for the first 20 minutes, I sound so smart because of my accent. And then mm-hmm. you get used to it and go, Oh yeah, you're an idiot really. aren't you? But, you know, I, I came in with this accent. So everyone assumed that I was really clever. Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's like a bonus. It's a step up. Yeah. Right? You, you get, you get away with stuff because you know, you just, you just sound a lot smarter than you actually are. Turned out that religion literature was all theory. So hmm. we didn't really read many novels and we didn't talk about God. It was all theory. So I kind of sidestepped that into a, program of they sort of invented for disaffected people this is how i remember it they, they remember it very differently <laughs> uh disaffected people like me called theology ethics and culture where you could kind sure. of do whatever you want actually david hart mm-hmm. when we we were in that program as well so he, oh. he was like oh you can't see this over the radio he was like way up there and i was way down huh. but yeah so a distinguished company there and i got to read i read a lot of you know historical stuff had i come into this and, you know, the whole postmodern thing was totally new to me. Had I come into this as an evangelical, my faith would have been in little teeny tiny splinters around mm-hmm. my feet within the first week. But having sort of jumped onto the historical church, then, you know, you've, you've got more flexibility. You can mm-hmm. kind of flow with things. So I kind of, yeah, I never really knew what theology was. And I was making it up as I go along. And I still deeply feel the lack of a 
sound undergraduate, you know, and now we're sure. going to have New Testament, and now we're going to have Old Testament, because, I, you know, I picked up this stuff on the fly when they said, you're going to teach this now. I'm like, shit. <laughs> okay, I'm going to teach this now. Someone give me a book. Did you feel like you had trouble catching up or? Well, I caught up. I did, you know, I'm relatively clever. I did okay with the stuff we were doing, but a lot of the groundwork mm-hmm. was this, you know, basic stuff that I've had to kind of pick up between the interstices. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, now I have. A lot of my theology has been formed by undergraduate teaching. Like, okay, mm-hmm. what do these people need? What do they have to read? How can I read it? So I kind of filled in a lack of an undergraduate education by providing it to others mm-hmm. and making it up as I went along, which we all do to some extent, I yeah. think, you know, you, but yeah, I, I've, I did I've, it to a greater degree than most, I think. I found so. I understand ethics a lot more now that I've been teaching it for a mm. few years. So I'm entirely sympathetic to that. And my entire, you know, my all my experience with the Bible had been in, you know, that, the, the, fundamentalist mm-hmm. world so when i had to teach it i just i thought okay i'm, I'm gonna treat it like a novel i guess and yeah. we just kind of jumped in and read the story and then i put together but you, you wouldn't know. have had the historical credit like the critical methods of reading scripture yeah. in, in that background and... yeah i had to figure out what it was and how how it worked well <laughs> not to teach my students and then kind of got the rest in later but do you, do you um, think that having that um that lack of background has actually helped you with undergraduates you know it might have I mean, there's always this dance because I'm in a Jesuit school, so we're encouraged to. We were all about uh, cura personalis, mm-hmm. formation of the whole person. You know, thank heavens I wound up in here. I actually to, to kind of complete the conversion story. My husband, I, I married a Lutheran, disaffected Lutheran, and we ended up <laughs> being Catholic. Which I, I'm kind of some of my more ardent colleagues don't like this, but my understanding is: look, this is the default setting for Christians in the West. This hmm. is the church in the West, and I don't really have roots anywhere else, so this is where I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a little impatient of those, you know. Mm-hmm. Augustine and John Henry Newman and me mm-hmm. um, conversion things where you finally, f- I don't know. It makes, <laughs> it makes me a little impatient, but that's, that's, that's not them, it, that's me. So I ended up, you know, teaching in a Catholic institution and being Catholic, which is, you know, very comfortable, obviously. It's nice mm-hmm. to do and they're very strong in Cura Personalis, so we're encouraged to engage, help the students to engage the material as existentially significant to them. Another big Jesuit thing is finding God in all things, so we're also encouraged to help them figure out their own meaning and where they are mm-hmm. in relation to it. So bringing what I was doing when I was their age was worrying obsessively over this stuff. So I combined with the fact that some of the stuff when I started teaching was really quite new to me as well you know they say you just got to stay 20 minutes ahead of your students mm-hmm. and sometimes it was 10 yeah um, <laughs> sometimes it, you're not sure you say oh that's a great question what do you think about that and then buy some time yeah yeah, yeah. and then go ask someone afterwards and very supportive <laughs> colleagues so the kind of the stuff i learned in grad school i can't teach mm-hmm. my students except for the patristics that was great i had this fabulous class on patristics and i do that whenever i can that's great isn't stuff I can give our undergraduates. So the stuff I give them is stuff that I learned from them that I needed. My first couple of years, I just threw readings at them. My first three semesters, had no idea who these people were. Showed up and said, hey, what do you guys think? And then gradually put together, all right, here's what they know, here's what they don't know, here's what they need, here's what engages them, and took much more control. Now I kind of wish I could go back to that the kind of openness I had at the start when I was clueless, because now I've got a much clearer sense of mm-hmm. you know what they need and where we need to get, and I wish I could kind of 
loosen up a bit. I've gone way off the track of your question. Sorry. No, no, no. Reorient me. (laughs) Do you think that, say, your own experience of the way the way you describe it sounds to me as though you had both sort of an intellectual and a spiritual struggle in Mm. your sort of college and graduate years, and that there's a there's a close interrelationship of those. The thing that drew me to the reason I read novels which I'd been reading obsessively like three mm-hmm. weeks since I was 13. I had no social life. I couldn't talk to people my own age. I just <laughs> locked myself in my room with you know, Jane Austen and Tolstoy and went at it. Was that I was, wanted to know what made people happy mm. and what people wanted and what motivated people. So that's the kind of big question I bring to theology as well. Okay. Like what, you know, that's interesting. What does it, if this is the case, what does it mean for us? Do you, do you find that that's a question that your your students are bringing with them already, even if, it, even if it's not formed in that way? That... Yeah, they, they, I find they respond very well to having it pointed out to them that this is their question. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, a lot of them didn't know they were really allowed to ask that hmm. question. And it, it's, they respond well when it's opened up. And, um, and that makes it, uh, does that make it easier to get them interested or engaged in theological material? Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you can get them to see, as I say, they do fairly readily. I've got various little, you know, tricks I do to get people on board with what we're mm-hmm. talking about. They get to ask, you know, what what do I really want? What makes me happy, and why mm-hmm. does it make me happy? And if I can suggest, there's a lot of forces out there making a lot of noise in their ears all the time, telling them something that isn't necessarily in their best interest. Mm-hmm. They, yeah, they can, they, they respond to that and then yeah. that will help to engage them with the text if one. And, and especially knows. among kind of traditional 18 to 22 year old students, yeah. this is sort of one of the first times when they may or may not be on their own. They have a real responsibility and ownership for these kinds of questions. You know, if they were church going when younger, that might've just been uh, parental direction that was mm. leading that. Something um, a lot of our students have. They grew up, a lot of them grew up in church. A significant majority of them say, yeah, I'm going to raise my kids Catholic. Of course, we're going to go to church. Of course, mm-hmm. I'm going to have them baptized. But they're not doing anything about it now. Yeah. And do they have any idea of why they're going to do that? I don't. Yeah, not. They can't. They say, well, it was good for me. Yeah. It's just, just very definite. You know, they're going to have a church wedding and the kids just, are going to be Catholic and the kids will get confirmed. And they're going I to just sometimes to wonder if it's just inertia, right? Like, But they're out of it now, but they, they're definitely going to come yeah. back to it. So I try and suggest, you know, that what well, you've got these required theology classes, there's campus ministry there, there's people sitting behind doors in this campus just dying to help have you knock on the door mm-hmm. and go, here, let me help you figure out, you know, what mm-hmm. a relationship with the meaning in your own life would mean. I say, you know, don't, don't, don't miss this opportunity because <laughs> no one out there gives a shit. Yeah, yeah. Just, you have to sorry, take can the I classes anyway. You have to take the classes anyway. I mean, you, yeah. might, you might so, as well get something if, out of it. If, if you think this is important enough that you're going to build your family life around it when you're, yeah. you know, unimaginably old, like 30 or something, you know, <laughs> then, you know, maybe that you is... might want to play with it a bit here. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, Interesting. But there's always a balance between trying to engage them existentially so they will engage with the material and then engaging with the material academically. Mm-hmm. See. Do you do you think that in kind of reflecting on your own uh, trajectory and experience of how you came to be teaching undergraduates theology yeah. now and the different sort of, uh, I guess, coincidences and surprises and turns yeah. that you've, you've narrated. And, and, and you invoke you invoked Augustine, actually, as part of why I'm thinking about this. 
does the language of vocation sort of adequately describe your experience as being a theologian? Like, does, is it a vocation for you in the sense of a calling, or is it sort of happenstance, or is that is that a way you would think about it or not? I, I don't know. I, I've, gosh, as I said, I grew up in an academic bubble. I did kind of stumble into this because mm-hmm. I didn't know what else one might do other yeah. than just, you know, keep doing school. It's the family um, business. So there was no moment of, of calling. I hope I still, I hope it's okay to say, well, I try and live it as if it, yeah. as if it's vocation. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's I fair. mean, I'm yeah. tremendously privileged to be able to do something that's A, you know, so much fun and <laughs> B, something that's inherently worth. That thing Lewis has about the kinds of jobs there are people doing activities which people would be doing if there were Mm-hmm. no economy and you didn't need to earn a mm-hmm. living you know so artists and yeah you know caring for sick people and educating it's really fabulous to be able to be in that so although i didn't i didn't have a i see the light moment mm-hmm. i'm like okay i could do this but i i i, I hope i get to there wasn't a road to damascus moment but maybe well except insofar as a switching from italian renaissance to that that was kind of a, that was a big moment for me. I'm going to switch courses, and then I met Newman, and then it all went from there. So I hope I was I hope I was being called. I hope this is where I'm supposed to be. I, I try <laughs> most of the time. I try and I certainly think of it much more as a vocation than as a a career. Yeah. I, I would like to be able to to claim sure. vocation for myself. I don't want to be a jerk about it. All right, that's fair. Who would you say were maybe? In, in this long process, who have been maybe big influences on you or mentors for you or I'm not sure actually, you, I mean, you said that you read obsessively, especially novels, uh, the specific, specific uh, books that have really shaped your, your trajectory, your, your growth and development. So books rather than people. I, well, yeah, both. I, I'm curious um, about both, but. Let's see. Well, yeah, the, the influence of books is kind of different. So, well, going way back again, because you're nice about that. My high school English teacher, a lot of people have got that high school English teacher, taught me to go to books to learn how to think and feel and figure mm-hmm. out life, which is just huge because that's what I've been all about forever. I finally, oh, this is rotten. I finally, three or four years ago, wrote the letter that I'd been, you know, telling myself, oh, I should really write to Mr. Quinn and tell him all this stuff. And it got there six months too late and reached oh. his wife. That was so sad. The people in... My friends in Oxford with whom I was trying to figure... I mean, there's yeah, there's so many people. Let's see. Turning Point Books. Early on Middlemarch, hmm. um, which I read when I was... You know, wait, I read stuff I was way too young for and didn't understand a quarter of, but I, I don't think there's any harm in that. You sure. Just, when, you're, when you're young, you're used to the world being puzzling and you're used to not understanding stuff and not really letting it bother you. So I read, I read War and Peace when I was That's 13. Really Isn't that ridiculous? And loved it. And I went back to it about five years ago and was getting all distracted because I didn't really know what was going on and I didn't know the politics and the relationship between the adjutant and the aide-de-camp and how huh. the... Because now I expect to understand stuff. And back then I didn't. Because yeah. the whole world's... So you just kind of jump and go That's with it. such a great insight. So I read all this stuff that was way over my head. But middle March, I read, turned round, went back to the beginning, read it again, read it <laughs> once or twice a year because I had to figure out how not to be Rosamond, hmm. and if I possibly could to be Mary. I don't know if you know the book. Not as well, no. It's, oh my gosh! Um, but that was okay. This is th- this is the thing to avoid, and I could be this. And how do I not be that? And how do I be this instead? And kept going back to it for clues about. I was never. 
I was never going to be Dorothea, but I wouldn't really want to be. Um, <laughs> anyway, if, if you're hello listeners, if your listeners have read this book, they'll know exactly what I mean. But then you should sure. read it sometime. I, I will pick it up. Yeah, I think uh, I have a copy actually, just sitting on the shelf waiting. So all right. So that was you know I was obviously reading the the Apologia mm-hmm. was that was a big turning point because all the things I'd been told about this whole world out there were just obviously not true hmm. so all kinds of walls and fears and stuff came crumbling down and i was in this much bigger world than i'd and all of mm-hmm. a sudden could just you know go out and find people to help me explore this and so that was that was thrilling c.s lewis has been a big deal i'm sure you hear that all the time um he's a I big mean, influence on many yeah it it, it, the stuff teaches so beautifully mm-hmm. and it works for me and it works for the students and we can get very much on the same page there. I find it lessens mm-hmm. lessens the gap between me and them because we can, you know, a lot of books we relate to in very different ways. Yeah. Um, but is that it, one we get it, we get it the same kind it of It seems level. like one thing that students seem to like with Lewis is because he has a foot both in a more academic camp and a foot in a more literary <clears> camp, He's able to uh, use one to express the other and vice versa in a way that makes his ideas and his images and his metaphors very accessible. Yeah. So yeah. The thing, I, I, I can't teach um, mere Christianity anymore. That just kind of stopped working. The, the kind of clarity, because it's coming out of the war, yeah. so the clarity of the us and them and everybody, yeah, it just, the, they don't... The time frame. Their, their ground their grounding is so relative that it's mm-hmm. just too far in to to go with them at the start they're like, sure no. so i've had to stop doing that but the great divorce is one of the best do you teach that everybody? uh i don't i'd love to the thing uh, just teaches itself so gloriously they totally get it i had early on i gave them screw tape thinking how can this fail and they <laughs> i know that we are from Britain. We're more at home with irony than maybe in America. But how can you not get that? But they yeah. really didn't. They were really confused the whole I have way a, through. And I have a student was... this semester who, uh, not religious, no religious background, found out she had to take religion, was not happy, uh-huh. happened to be in my class, and has said so far it's one of her favorites. And, and so I'm, you know, I'm patting myself on the back for that. But she came to talk to me and was just sort of curious. And, I, and so I loaned her my copy, and I'm like. Read, read this. Okay. Let me know what you think. Like, you might hate it. You might love it. You might have no response to it. I don't know. But, like, if you're interested in these kinds of questions, um, this is at least kind of literary take. It's this, like, altered, unexpected perspective on the question. I haven't heard back from her. So I'm hoping okay. she hasn't lost the book. But, um, but yeah, that's the book that I go to with, with students that seems to work. So. Yeah, he's. I'm reading now. It's one of those things you think, okay, I want to read this book and I want to change my class. I've I've got theology one, the Bible class, pretty much down. I kind of got that, but theology two, I change like every time. Mm-hmm. I'm always throwing out a syllabus and getting a new syllabus, and and I'll you know assign stuff I haven't read because it kind of looks like it's okay, and I don't really have time now. And the bookstore needs the order, so I've just started reading, having only very quickly skimmed through Robert Barron's. And now I see a theology of transformation, which I'm very mm. excited about. I mean, no one has done. A lot of people have tried to write, and Deep Wright has tried to write, and Barron is trying to write the thing that will replace mere Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone's come sure. close. So that doesn't really work with our students. But there's just a, a gap there. This I'm very optimistic about. Mm-hmm. Um, 
something I read, which I can't do with most of my students, but I was put into teaching this elite group, Special Jesuit Liberal Arts, the, 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 the nerds. And I threw them also to make myself read it. Ratzinger's Introduction to Christianity. Mm-hmm. And goodness me, that's fabulous. Yeah. Because you come and you think, all right, this is Ratzinger and he's going to be... Because I, I, I drift off... I mean, the liberal conservative thing is so not useful, but I drift off in that in the liberal direction every now and then. I think I need to kind of yank hmm. myself back and give myself a swift kick in the pants. I'm going to read some Ratzinger woman. I'll sort you out. <laughs> um, and it was so not what I expected. Huh. It was. Have you, have you I haven't read that one, that? no. So, oh, it's really difficult. Huh. The student, I mean, they were, they were very bright, but they needed a lot of help, and I couldn't do it with their regular mm-hmm. students at all. But the... He starts with this story, this old German fable about um, clever hands, lucky hands or clever hands, who's going back from his master and his master's back to his mother's house and his master's given him a big lump of gold and the gold is really, really heavy and it's hot and he sees a guy on a horse and goes, oh, it would be nice not to have to carry the lump of gold and you could ride a horse, so he trades it and then he gets thirsty, so he trades the horse for a cow and so on mm-hmm. down until he's got a, a grinding stone. Um I mean, it goes on, but you get the picture. Yeah. And then the thing rolls, he's stopping to take a drink because it's really hot and he's carrying this big lump of rock and, rock and it slips into the river. And he goes, oh, this is great. I don't have to carry anything. And shows up back at his mother is really happy um, <laughs> without anything. <laughs> and he, Ratzinger, uses this as an um, image of what's happened to theology in the 20th century, that things are just too heavy to carry with us. Hmm. We really have to carry the miracles with us. And we, and so little by little, we give things away and then are left with nothing. So it's kind of, he doesn't put it in these terms, but it's kind of a plea for, you know, taking the darn big, heavy, inconvenient, awkward lump of gold that's mm-hmm. the creed and carrying it with you and exploring what you can do with it. I mean, mm-hmm. what the power of this thing is rather than just saying, this is too heavy. I don't expect me to believe all this, really, <laughs> and just letting it go. So he it's a, he, it's a commentary on the creed, and he unpeels mm-hmm. every bit of it to show what the value of this is. This is gold, yeah. and here's what you can do with this gold oh. in terms of it's, it's fabulous. So that's been a big, that's been a big influence yeah. recently, and just how one does this enterprise, trying to engage people where they are and still tying them to the tradition because because they i mean they they see tradition as a burden i'm sure your students are the same there's the spiritual but not religious yeah um, well and there's there's just crowd. this assumption that tradition equals shackles equals uh old equals lamentable in some way that it or in the same way that authority always means yeah. someone telling me something that i don't want to do right uh, and, and and getting students i i mean something i often ask my students when we get to talk about authority is how many of you are familiar with the American Civil War? And then I'll raise their mm. hands eventually. And then I'll ask them, how many of you were there? And then they'll, no one will put their hand up. They're like, well, well, how do you know it happened? <clears throat> like, well, I, I've been to Gettysburg. And it's like, and you saw a giant field. What does that tell you? <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, so at some point, I mean, it helps them to sort of break through this idea that authority is in and of itself a terrible, oppressive thing. So. Yeah. That, and Augustine, I'm, just finished doing Augustine with one class. He does a thing with that where he realizes how much in daily life we take. Like, how do you know your parents? Your parents, you know, mm-hmm. someone told you. Yeah. And, I mean, um, I was there, but I don't remember it. I, yeah. <laughs> and it's the, the the excitement of the the fact that these things got handed down. So you have 
12 just guys, you know, the guys mm-hmm. who would fit your kitchen cabinets or unclog your drains, mm-hmm. see their friend die, eat lunch with their friend a few days later, and then go yeah. and tell the world and die saying, okay, I'm not scared of you. I'm not scared of death. Did you listen to what I was saying? Mm-hmm. You got to kill me. Go ahead and kill me. Death doesn't scare me. Yeah. I've seen out the other end of death. And then other this people just trying to tell all the church is doing is just keeping on telling this. Mm-hmm. Now I've got... I had, when I discovered Anglo-Catholicism, a very kind of super traditionalist smells and bells thing. And it ended mm-hmm. up, I mean, we keep evolving as people. So I've got colleagues who do a fabulous job of trying to, who, who love the tradition as tradition and all the, the bells and whistles and draw the students into that. My approach is more to go, yeah, you know what? It's heavy. I get it. Mm-hmm. It's heavy, and but it's, it's heavy because it's gold. Yeah. So I, I kind yeah. of go with their discomfort with having to carry all this stuff around but try and persuade them that there's stuff in here that's really valuable for them in ways they can turn it into things that will matter immensely in their lives yeah Um, and and connecting that back to earlier about your your comment about happiness really being kind of the heart of their question yeah that enabling them to to have the space to be critical and to challenge you know what they've always assumed or what they've always thought they know allows them to in some way take ownership of that yeah right like it if they're not going to see it as a burden if they're will if they're able to ask critical questions yeah and and be able to think about how can you spend this we had this i had a class wednesday is this fabulous nun sister peggy who i met in january in el salvador who's an extraordinary woman and she was on campus because we were giving her a a big award for being fabulous Um, (laughs) so she came to my classes she's extraordinary and they loved her, but I'm going to have to do a little damage control. Um, she went there in the middle of the Civil War. Thought I'm going to, I need to be with these people, mm-hmm. and has you know escaped from government troops in the middle of the night and had nothing to eat and returned because she was a nun. She was kind of untouchable, so she was the one who could do the forbidden thing of taking severed heads and returning them to the parents. Whoa. And I mean, she's got these amazing stories, and she's talked in terms of well you know we've got all these images of god but god's really you know the life force and so she's kind of way out mm-hmm. on that end and the students were, were captivated by it because one would be what we're going to have to do when i get back is say okay she can talk about god as being you know a life force because he is her god is her life force mm-hmm. she's she's just immersed herself given up all ties to everything and all mm-hmm. kind of security and just immersed herself in this so you know, for you or me to go, oh, God's just a life force when we're living our little consumerist life. That's that can be yeah. lazy and dangerous. Mm-hmm. You don't cheap grace. You know, you yeah. He, God is flowing through everything that she does because she's been sure. doing this since she went to huh. be with these people in the middle of a civil war. The rest of us don't really get to do that because that's just sloppy. The rest of us need to carry this tradition around until you know maybe we develop so we are so soaked in it mm-hmm. soaked in that we can kind of walk away from tradition and just you know be saturated with god everywhere we go but yeah most of um, aren't. so that that yeah they it could you see what i mean it, mm-hmm. it could be damaging for them to go oh well she's fabulous and these things god is just a life force mm-hmm. so, but i don't think we get to do that yet yeah so. sure one thing i wanted to to ask you about is you've you've written on the virtue of hospitality and I, I know also from, you had an essay where you talk about having students over and everything. And so you really practice the virtue of hospitality with your students. I was wondering if you could say something about what hospitality means for you 
and how that has shaped your life in, in theology, how it shaped your life as a teacher, and what role that plays for you. I've written about this. It's awkward in conversation because I kind of organize it in the book. We never got into it as, ooh, let's practice the virtue of hospitality. Let's mm-hmm. exercise the ministry of hospitality among our students. We just lived close to campus and people would just show up and then we'd invite them around. It just kind of happened. It got more, after several years, it got a bit more formal because this group sort of declared themselves, okay, we're the Thursday night movie group and we're gonna, and then other mm-hmm. people came. So it's only kind of, at, we were just doing what we kind of wanted to do and thought was fun. And only after the event did we go, oh, look, I guess this is hospitality. Yeah. But you had to actively encourage it in some sense. Yeah. I mean, I just... You you weren't putting a sign on the door saying, go away, you know? No, no, no. I mean, yeah, I can't stay up as late as I used to (laughs) when the kids are older. Yeah, we used to do, like, you know, we'd go till dawn, and now Mm -hmm. I'm like, we get to one o'clock, I'm like, go away, I have to go. Well, sometimes we'll just go upstairs and say, lock the door when you leave. Yes, we're, you know, it's that kind of neighborhood. As a teacher, it's tremendously valuable having, seeing your students kind of off duty because mm-hmm. I know a lot of stuff that goes on among students that you wouldn't get in class because if you so you just kind of listen in on other people's conversations and say oh what's this about so it helps me to have a much clearer sense of where they're at and what their mm-hmm. issues are which is extraordinarily useful raising teenagers I say because <laughs> they don't get to go oh mom you're so old you have no idea I say, yeah I, I, I do I mm-hmm. have an idea I know exactly what goes on and which is it's very useful. Yeah, a lot of our, a lot of our really good friends over the years have been people we met as students. I mm-hmm. mean, the reason I'm, I'm here is to a, a two-way connection from a former pair mm-hmm. of former students. Uh, the, th- the silent third person in the room uh, is the friend of former students. And mm-hmm. so these have become. They start out obviously as kind of you know asymmetrical relationships where we've got certain kinds of responsibilities they don't have and then you know a lot of people just you know grow up and move on obviously but some people the friendships develop into adult friendships yeah we go to we go to a lot of weddings it's a very (laughs) very wedding rich job this Um, because you get you know most people you get the age where you and all your friends are getting married and then you have like a 25 year gap and then their children start getting married mm-hmm. you go to more weddings but we've had a steady stream of, okay. you know, a couple every year so so what was the question i'm just well, blabbling so in, a, in a way that i mean so it's clear how it's kind of shaped your your life in, in that uh, is there a way that it has also shaped your teaching or i mean I know you've written on it so in a sense it's maybe shaped your research as well well, it's, it's shaped my teaching in that I have, I think, a much clearer sense of mm-hmm. who our students as a group are than I would otherwise. And you can, I mean, it's one of those, you know, little technical tricks that if you can drop into a class something that your students are totally surprised you know, mm-hmm. then that can kind of shock them into yeah. loosening up. So being aware of some of the things that go on in the students' mm-hmm. part of life. And it just... I mean, it is getting when I when I came, the students were a younger a younger version of me. I mean, mm-hmm. I could see, you know, ooh, that I would have I would have had a heck of a crush on that guy, and that girl is just <laughs> like I used to be, and I could still see them in that in that light. Now they're an older version of my kids, hmm. and they do. I you know I I don't like watching it happen, but it's just part of maturity. My my sense of being that age mm-hmm. is kind of. I'm I'm losing it. I go back to my college journals and try and but it's I'm losing it a lot more slowly than I would if we didn't yeah. have these young people around being themselves. And so you I mean you can then see the way that even those relationships are 
not with individual people's, but sort of as time has gone on, the relationships have changed, right? That you yeah. have with these people is yeah. Uh, well, as you know, while I've got kids going through mm-hmm. adolescence, so you just you know, you see, I'm, I'm the age of my students' parents mm-hmm. now, so that's there's. I mean, of course, there's going to be a, a shift. So I don't, you know, I don't know how this, you know, completely informal Ministry of Hospitality blah 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 is going to go over the next ten years. You know, so far mm-hmm. people keep on showing up, sure, which is great. I, I love it. They relate to us differently than you know, because we used to be kind of like older siblings, they could see mm-hmm. themselves, you know, I could see myself being them and they could kind of see themselves being us. And now right. that, that vision is lost. because I'm, you know, I'm like sure. the mom. I mean, there's a lot of people, I mean, I had a, a family in this role myself who there's a period where you need parenting, mm-hmm. but you're not quite ready to take it. You can't quite take it from your own parents. Often when they're excellent parents, I mean, mm-hmm. we've been these kind of surrogate parents to people who have marvelous families and, you know, are, want to have families like themselves, but just can't be mothered by mother. But they still need a bit of mothering, so mm-hmm. I do a bit of that sometimes. It's not, you know, it's not filling in for bad parenting. It's just transitioning away from it. But people, you know, people assign us whatever role in their mm-hmm. life they have. So one kind of, I guess, set of questions I have, which is a, a little bit different, are about the like the craft of theology more specifically. And in particular, even just kind of logistical questions like, what what is your day like or, or like your average week like as a theologian? I mean, how do you how do you balance having I mean you 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 have a family, you have four kids, you have teaching I'm, responsibilities, you have I assume service university responsibilities. You you have other things going on in your life as well. How is it that you sort of manage doing theology amidst all of that? How do you have balance uh, insofar as you do? I'm trying to find by so by doing theology you mean research and writing. Yeah. Uh, I mean researching, writing, teaching. I no. uh, yeah, I um. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I certainly spend a lot more of my time doing theology as teaching students and, and right, other students that's that I do writing, ultimately. Most of it is. And every time you come back to the same thing, it's new every time. I yeah. mean, I, you never, I, I've taught, gone through the Bible with two classes a semester, you know, forever, like 20 years. And it's exciting every time. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff happens there. My research gets tucked away into little corners. I was, I had a went a couple of rounds with cancer a few years ago, completely dropped everything else except the amount of teaching I had to do. And it's been a while getting back into the, mm-hmm. getting back into the habit of it. That gets tucked away into little corners here. And then I always try and get my syllabus done before the end of the previous semester. Okay. So I can, you know, I have them printed out and ready to go and then just walk away from it and go, okay, this is all set. So to leave breaks free for that. Though this didn't happen this time because I had my syllabus all tidied away. I had a couple of articles I was working on. My own, I still do 19th century religion literature. These very tiny little teeny sub-niche within a (laughs) sub-niche. Historical novels dealing with the early church. And the way in which different factions within 19th century English Christianity. So you had your high church and Mm -hmm. your low church and your broad church and how they would portray um, the early church in such a way as to bolster their own position. Mm-hmm. So, see, the, the early Christians, they were just like Catholics or just like evangelicals or just like the yeah. church. So it's... Uh, and the, most of the novels are abysmal. <laughs> and you have to be a real, you know, 19th century nerd to like this stuff. So, you know, I'm one of the few people on the planet that actually enjoys reading, you know, 
fourth-rate Victorian crap mm-hmm. and, and mining it. So I, I make little bits and spaces for mm-hmm. it here and there. My writing more recently, and this is what I'd really like to do, is writing for a broader audience. I did the hospitality book and the reason yeah. I'm in, in Florida is the um, a book about a relationship with our... Uh, we live in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood and got mm-hmm. to be close to people. So that's... I want, I want to be an essayist. Okay. Grand pretension in life. Sure. To be an essayist. But I feel, feel I owe it to the institution to keep some, you know, scholarly footnotey stuff mm-hmm. trotting out. Even though I don't know, I mean, it's such a little fetish. Mm-hmm. You know, who cares, really? Who cares? <laughs> I mean, I think it's fun. And four yeah. other people out there might think it's fun. But, sure. But the, the kind of, the bigger sort of writing I want to do, I'm actually working now in little spaces on something which if I get it published and I keep polishing and repolishing it'd be the first thing I've ever written that one that doesn't trade in on my academic training in mm. any way so I want to see if I can write something that one would read just because it's well written okay I do I for an academic I write fairly well mm-hmm. which is like saying you know for a and you see all anesthesiologist I, I sing fairly well I mean mm-hmm. writing and being an academic don't always go together but I, I want to kind of develop so. that that side of things but do you know uh, like the, this work that you want to do do you do you have the topic in mind or oh yeah no okay. I've got the it, it just keeps going through revisions I left it long enough that my whole life I, I, I'm having a midlife crisis now so <laughs> everything changed everything and I went back sure. and thought oh now I'm having my midlife crisis then this isn't true anymore and it's about my relationship with the city in Italy I lived for a couple of years okay. but I've got various tricks. Have you have you come across um, writeordie.com? No. Oh, it's this glory that you can actually buy it for $10 and download it. It's a cheap trick, but you know it works. So you say, I'm going to write for 15 minutes. I'm going to get 250 words. Mm-hmm. And so you, you tell it this and you start. And if you're writing too slowly, the screen starts getting pink and then it gets red and you hit a certain point and it starts playing out-of-tune violins or screaming babies at you. <laughs> so there's this pressure. You have to fill up the thing. It's really... Because you know when you get into that thing like, should I start with this word or mm-hmm. should I start with this word? Yeah. And here you have to... The, the babies are going to start screaming unless you just smack some crap down yeah. on the screen. And then you've you've got it. Yeah. I'll, I'll write myself a little... You know, I'm going to write on this thing for 15 minutes... And then I'm going to play two games of solitaire. And then I'm going to move to this essay and write on mm-hmm. this. So just try and break things up because time is, yeah. you know, time is short and there's loads of things going on and there's the, you know. Would you say, like, you, you try to write basically every day, even if it's a little bit or most days? Um, or There have been phases when I've written every day and it's been great. Mm-hmm. The last, like, three weeks is just been a yeah. chaos. But even, yeah, even just half an hour it makes a huge difference mm-hmm. just do a couple of sentences i've got like three different things going on mm-hmm. do a couple of sentences on each and the more you do it the easier it gets yeah. i mean it's like anything it's a habit yeah yeah, yeah. if you can and form it the, the the words just come out more easily i will leave myself and this isn't really about theology again see i'm not talking about theology i'm talking about life i'm this sorry is, um, uh, life and theology they go okay together, there we sorry. go I'll leave myself little notes in capital letters saying, okay, when you get back to this, Maria, then you need mm-hmm. to do this thing next. So there's like clear instructions. When yeah. I open the laptop. And- I know some people will actually leave off writing in the middle of a sentence. Oh. So that they, ha- like, they have a specific place to pick it right up. Okay. So they're not, they're not trying to start a new thought, but they're completing an old thought and that helps them to keep writing. Yeah, that's I've nice. never tried that because I think my own, pro- I think I would, I would stress about it until I return to it. 
okay. the incomplete thought. But what, what are your methods for getting yourself going? I, I have a similar one, actually, which is I have two timers that are they're cubes, and they have different time links on the side. So uh-huh. one, uh, one cube has 5, 15, 30, 60. And if, you, and if you place it with the 60 side up, it'll count down 60 minutes. Okay. And I have another one that's like 1, 5, 10, 15. And I use the bigger one for I turn that over and I work until it goes off. And then I turn the other one over and I goof off until that goes off. Huh. And that when I when I actually do that, it goes really well. That's great. And sometimes okay. even like the white one will <clears throat> the the white one, which is the longer one, will go off, and I'll just keep going because like I, I've I've hit a groove. Okay, and I yeah. Keep mining the right. vein, but sometimes when it goes off, it's such a relief that now I can think about something else for you know ten or fifteen minutes or huh. whatever. And so the days I do that, or the days when I set up beforehand, you know, from eight to eight thirty, I'm going to write. Eight thirty to nine thirty, I'm going to grade. And if I stick with that, that works. My real problem is I don't follow this every day. Right. So. <laughs> well, enjoy I it. I let myself slide. Having met your brand new wife last night, someday in the future you may have babies, and then yeah. everything changes. That's what so. I hear. Yeah. So, so. we're gonna start with a puppy. So we'll. Oh, all right. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll ease in that way, I guess. So to, to wrap up, we have a short little less serious questionnaire. Okay. Of five questions. First off, what is your favorite biblical name? Favorite. Biblical name. Oh dear, so this is going to take me much. This is going to be much harder than all the you know talk about yourself endlessly woman questions. The, the silly uh, questions can be very serious sometimes. I like Ruth. Hmm. Not very exciting, but I like it. Right. Um, yeah, there we go. No. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Uh, what is your favorite or and or least favorite liturgical song? Ooh, so I love that the the grand Anglican tradition. That's the let's see, Hallelujah, sing to Jesus. Mm-hmm. I think least favorite. Oh, that one that everybody loves. And wherever I go, Catholic or like Pentecostal, they have the same darn song. Then sings my soul. Oh, really? How great thou art! Yeah, that's yeah. it. Oh, I loathe that song. Really? I love that song. Yeah. Why do you loathe it? You got all the whispering, this, that, and the other, and the lofty mountain grandeur, and it's so. <laughs> I, I, uh, it's like that. What's that painter that does the cutesy little houses with the light coming out? Uh, um, is that? Kincaid? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like that. I yeah. Huh. The mountains don't tell us that they're lofty and grand. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but everywhere I go, that song that is, follows me. It's all over my, the place. My church it's uses not... that quite regularly. Of what or whom would you be the patron saint? Ha! What? Who would I be the patron saint? Well, despite all my tricks, procrastinators. Good on them. <laughs> Except you have to con- conquer the... Who might eventually get around to praying Who to you. might eventually, yeah. Yeah, there. All right. What profession, and this might be a tough one for you, given that you said you grew up in the academic bubble. What profession, other than the current one, your current one, would you either like to attempt or do you think you might have done had, you know, things gone a little differently for you? Well, what I would like to attempt, in the sure and certain knowledge I would fail, but that's fine. Someone said, well, there's two kinds of, Academics are the ones who really just want to sit in a library but have to teach because it's the only way they can Mm -hmm. earn the time to do the research. And then there's the kind who are prepared to suck up the research to get in front of a class because what they really wanted to do was stand-up comedy, but they were not Mm -hmm. funny. So so I... That's me. Yeah, I would want to be in theatre. I did. Hmm. I did theatre in high school and then thought, oh, I'll go do this in college, and then the level was so staggeringly lovely. But now I'm in some little community theatre things, and it's, oh, nice. yeah, it's great fun. But That's Yeah, I'm a 
I'm a show off. I like, <laughs> I, I like being up front there and having all the people look at me. Yeah. I like it when I can make them laugh. I like yeah. to feel like I can compel my students to laugh at me because they feel like they have to. So, uh, well, it's, yeah. it's gratifying to the ego, but it is also a useful teaching tool mm-hmm. if you can yeah. use humor to make yeah. them. It breaks up if, expectations. If, if they're happy, then they're yeah. more likely to learn than if they're not happy. So. I find I love whenever I teach Genesis and we talk about Jacob and Esau, I love pointing out that Esau is described as a redhead. Like as uh-huh. red and everything. Because they don't pick up on that. And then I start talking about how Jacob's relationship with Esau is the beginning of kind of uh, anti-redhead, anti-ginger prejudice. <laughs> and then, oh, and then they start, like they start actually thinking about the text at that point because now something is different or funny about it. If you can get sort of on, get close to them through humor and then when you turn serious, mm-hmm. it can, yeah. you know, if you, if you switch the mood and kind of mm-hmm. go for the jugular, that can work, work too. Uh, last question. Uh, yeah. Believing that heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive? I know you talked yeah. before about assurance of salvation, but we're, 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 <laughs> yeah. we're assuming that here. You could make so. a joke about it. Oh, gosh, just welcome home, I guess. I mean, just, mm. you know, the idea that this journey might have an end and you mm-hmm. get there and then it's like, okay, now we get it. Right. I, I, I enjoy the journey, but yeah. I would like There's the destination. To, at some point, I would like to, to be home. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, well, thank you very much. This was wonderful. Oh, uh, thank you. I love hearing fun. your stories. So thank you so much thank for being here. Thank you very much. This was, this was lovely. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo. 